Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Amy McLennan, welcome to Bite Sized Experts. Thanks, Stanley. Great to be here. Um, Amy, you worked on Nauru. You visited there and worked there in 2007. Um, you went back and did your doctoral field work in 2010-11. Um, can you tell us something about that work? Sure, no problem at all. Um, I first worked in Nauru um, on a series of projects funded by the Australian government, including several nutrition projects. And at the time, um, was really struck by the figures um, and the health data in the country. Um, the people of Nauru face one of the um, most devastating um, disease burdens relating to um, obesity and, and especially type 2 diabetes in the world. Um, the men have a life expectancy of around 50 years and the women around 60, which devastates local communities in all sorts of ways. So um, I was really both excited and grateful to be able to go back there and work more on the question of nutrition and nutritional change um, in 2010 and 2011, which is what I did. Okay, can you tell us, uh, give us some of the specifics, what what were you actually doing when when you were there? Sure, well, I suppose um, I went in with one kind of big question. Um, It's often said that the people of Nauru have such devastating health problems because they've experienced lifestyle change. Um, In the world of medicine, lifestyle is often distilled into uh, what you eat, what exercise you do, uh, whether you sleep or not, uh, whether you smoke, and if you drink alcohol. Um, But one thing became very clear to me very quickly is when you work with people on the ground in communities, lifestyle means something completely different. It means who you're related to and who you spend time with. It's what you like to do, uh, where you learn, the habits you have and the habits and and practical practices in your community. It's the political um, leadership. It's the economy. It's the geography and the place in which you live and it's your history and all of these things really matter too. And they are not currently bundled up in the medical definition of lifestyle. So I went to have a look at if obesity is a lifestyle disease in somewhere like Nauru, what do we mean by lifestyle and how has lifestyle changed over time for people in their own words? The way that we, the ways in which food played a, played a part in these, these lifestyle um, factors, how, how, how did that play out? Yeah, I must admit, I was really surprised. I think I went into to carrying out research and, and hearing people's life histories and life history stories, expecting to hear um, enormous changes in um, food um, and, and, and dietary patterns. And I was really surprised to find that kind of on the one hand, remarkably little had changed, much less than I was expecting. So um, if you look across the arc of the last 100 years or even across the arc of 80 years, some of the people I spoke to were 80 years old and could remember when they were little, um, people were still eating white rice, which was 
was discussed as the local traditional staple, despite the fact that it had never been cultivated there. Um, there was still a, a significant predominance of um, cheap cuts of meat, um, especially those imported from Australia um, and preserved meats. And there was still a, a predominance of, or a practice of eating fresh fish straight out of the ocean, which is one of the most wonderful things you could possibly have there. So given that that's my starting point, I then went back to the drawing board and thought, well, what else has changed? And it was when I started asking people or started exploring stories of how people shared meals or ate together um, that things really started to get a bit more interesting. So, um, so in the past, people recalled, for example, having meals where they would share with their whole family. Um, they would share a fish or a large can of, of corned beef and rice, and that that would go around the whole family. Um, fast forward to present day, and you had people who were telling me that they wouldn't eat with their family and that they hid their food because if not, it would be stolen from them and someone else in their family would take it. So you see the same kind of food, but the rhetoric around it um, and the relations that are built around it completely changed. Um, and in turn, what one of the things that really became apparent was that um, relationships were, were sometimes an, a source of stress and food became a, an incredible source of stress and stressed relationships. And we know from um, the work of people like Alex Brewis how central things like stress and stress pathways are um, to um, obesity and other non-communicable diseases. Can I ask you, um, why did this pattern, these patterns of sharing and commensality of food change? And have you got some thoughts? Uh, look, I have lots. Of, I always have lots of thoughts. And I think the people of Nauru certainly had lots of thoughts and lots of, of stories as well. Um, for me, one of the, the kind of the things that really stood out is typically in talking about Pacific Islander um, diets and especially traditional diets, there's been a tendency in, in some of the literature to assume that Pacific Islands are isolated, um, that people are isolated, that there's been kind of a, a kind of predisposition, genetic predisposition to being in one place with only one set of people um, and to kind of relying on one narrow uh, selection of food sources for a long time. Um, I saw entirely the opposite when I was in Nauru. Islanders are hugely interconnected. Um, the, the fact that they're little points on a map surrounded by blue kind of hides the fact that there are huge amounts of flows of people across and between islands. Um, in Nauru, there are 12 matrilineal tribes, they're called, and one of the tribes is designated for people who um, do not have a Nauruan-born mother. So there's an entire kind of 12th of the population. And now even more than that, given the growth of the, the tribe that um, is dedicated to, to adopting people who are not from there. Um, and at the same time, very early on in the colonial period, Nauru became very quickly connected with all sorts of places through, uh, through the colonial process. They became a major stopping point for ships. They became a major mine site, which meant that there were indentured workers and especially indentured laborers from China who brought with them rice, um, which also of course traveled very well on ships. Um, there were huge influences from Australia, 
both in terms of colonial influences and imported foods, and also importantly, imported health advice. Um, and all of these things have changed and shaped and influenced the Narrowan diet and the Narrowan uh, way of life and um, undoubtedly Narrowan's well-being. Can you describe a typical Nauruan meal, if such exists? Sure. Well, in the words of uh, people I um, I worked with, um, it would be uh, a meal consists of rice. If there is no rice, then it's not a meal. Um, and if you can, there is kind of a uh, there's a skill to it where if you can imagine getting a, for example, a paper plate and mounding it carefully with rice so that the rice kind of sits on top of it um, almost balanced and packed down um, and then you put your protein on top of that protein is an, again a word that, their word not mine um, which is usually some form of meat uh, whether it's barbecued meat or um, fish or raw fish for example um, and that would constitute a meal if it didn't have rice it wouldn't constitute a meal um, and if it didn't have protein, then it wouldn't constitute a meal. So it's a bit different to the meat and three veg we're used to, maybe from British my British grandmother. Um, but and that rice is, you know, the the fundamental part of the meal. Even though people don't grow rice, I imagine it's imported from from other parts of the world. Yeah. So at the moment, um, well, rice is imported from numerous places. Uh, the importer of choice at least when I was there, this may well have changed now, um, was Australian rice because it tasted better. Um, there, were also, there was also Chinese rice, which was um, not preferred as much. Um, Japan, as one of the foreign donors who had a presence on the island, also um, provided rice. And at times uh, there was an ongoing kind of changing relationship, a diplomatic relationship between Nauru and uh, the People's Republic of China and Nauru and the Republic of China or Taiwan as it was known there. Um, and at times the Taiwanese government would also provide rice in the population. But at the time I was there, by far the one that tasted the best according to the people I spoke to was the Australian sun rice. And can I ask you about the <clears throat> major source of protein? Was it, uh, in their words, was it local fish? Was it sort of imported meat, tin meat and stuff like that? It depended the people. Um, certainly in terms of imported meats, the fattier cuts of meat were preferred over the um, leaner cuts. So for example, if you had a chicken, the chicken wings preferred over chicken breast um, because they had a better smell, better mouthfeel. I kind of agree with all these things because barbecue chicken um, does something wonderful with the smell of um, cooking. Um, some people, if they had people who fished in their family would eat a lot more fish. Um, so that depended a bit on availability as well. Um, and otherwise all of the meat was imported from overseas with the exception of some pigs running around the island that again, depended on local family ownership. At the time that you were there, there's been work written about lamb flaps and the sale of low grade, very fatty meat around the, the Pacific islands. Uh, were lamb fats, very fatty meat, was that? very evident? Yeah, definitely. Um, it definitely was. I mean, the other thing to remember is, um, so Nauru uh, uses the Australian dollar currency. Uh, but if you can imagine when I was there, the economy certainly wasn't thriving. And, and uh, I think an average wage for a 
a public service worker on the island was in the order of 200 or $300 maximum a fortnight. And that's often to support a very large family and often extended family as well, because there were really high unemployment rates. And at the same time, they consume, they import almost all of their, um, or, or at the time import, importing almost all of their meat from places like Australia. So often the cheap cuts both smell better on a barbecue, but also really importantly, uh, more affordable. Um, so absolutely, they were very common. Well, as you know, I, I worked on the Cook Islands and it always seemed pretty extraordinary that food travelled sometimes halfway around the world to these tiny, tiny islands. Um, do you have any sense what drove that system in the first place? Well, that's a good question. I suspect, as with many systems, the changes are incremental and many. Um, certainly, the the colonial period was incredibly long um, in Nauru. From, I think from 1888, we see annexation by Germany. We see that uh, the island change hands to, to uh, an administration um, under the British and Australian and New Zealand governments at the end of the First World War. And we see that continue up until 1968. Um, and during that time, there was certainly a lot of influence from um, both direct intervention in diet, if you like, so kind of medical professionals coming in and recommending um, what people ought to eat for their health, to improve their health in line with best health recommendations from um, Western science at the time. But also importantly, we see importation of new kinds of social values, um, which are propagated and shared through things like education um, or the education system, and also through things like um, kind of role modeling, if you like. So um, we see even early on the diaries of um, some of the early missionaries on the island who um, are horrified that people might eat fish raw. And this missionary's wife writes in her diary um, how she spent a great deal of time convincing the, the natives um, or the local population that they were wrong to eat raw fish um, and that they must fry their fish and fry their food um, which is, of course, then something that they adopt into their own practice. So we see see these practices um, adopted from uh, from the different kind of colonial settlers that were there over time. Um, more recently, I think we've also seen a lot of research, even since independence in 1968, which shows the extent to which kind of the modern day foreign policy um, and trade policy really does have detrimental effects on the health of many Pacific Islanders communities. And I'm not sure whether you've come across that in the Cook Islands as well, um, but the trade relationships, which mean that, um, that many of the islands are obliged to, to purchase and consume meats that are um, advised, that, that we advise against selling in places like Australia or that we even ban from selling in Australia, uh, disposed of elsewhere in the form of um, alternative markets. Yeah, that's a very good euphemism, alternative markets. Yes, absolutely, in the Cook Islands. And I was, while you were saying, uh, while you were talking, I was just thinking about how sort of extended these food systems are and that uh, these uh, um, colonial values create uh, certain kinds of dependencies almost and uh, and relationships which are very one-sided 
Absolutely. And I mean, some of the other colonial values we can see coming through are things like um, even to a certain extent, individualism or this focus on individual meals, which kind of at the beginning I referred to in terms of people once finding meals a source of satisfaction and, and fulfillment um, and, and kind of sharing a today stressful and we hear this rhetoric coming through of, of individualized meals and, and individual kind of property or having earned your own food or your own money to afford it. Um, and these kind of, I suppose, economic um, values start to infuse in the way that not only we consume food, but also the way we experience it and share it. Um, and we know that that's important in places like Nauru. Um, I really love one of the words in the, the local language um, is pueduen. I probably pronounced that really badly. Um, but, uh, and, and it means on the surface, the, the, the probably one of the tra many translations is to be full, so you've had enough to eat. But it, the same word is also used if you've just had sex or if you've had a great relationship um, or if you're kind of just sitting back after a great afternoon or evening of yarning. So, so there's something that's really critical about the, the relationship between food and fulfillment and sociality. Um, and all of these things are wrapped together. When we start to see the, the colonial rhetoric of individual property and food coming in, then we start to see changing relationships around food as well. Amy McLennan, I always learn so much from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stanley. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliazak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.